so I'll have to change them. And I'll make them some of you, so. That's good. Some of you are still chuckling, that's great. Our son lives here in Kitchener, Waterloo, and is just uh, taking over a company that Pat's been running for several years, and we're excited about that. And our daughter, Christine, that some of you know, uh, lives out in White Rock, uh, BC, about a 20-minute walk from the ocean. We made sure that she had a two-bedroom condo for selfish reasons, because it's free for us to go out there and stay in her place. And if she wants to be there, that's okay. But uh, she's doing well out there. Both of our, our young adult children work with people of disability, and uh, it's been a real joy to watch them grow up and become young adults and make the decisions that they've made in their lives. You've been walking through the book of Psalms, I understand. Last week, uh, you looked at the good life, and I want to talk to Gavin because I'm pretty sure that golf is included in the good life. Because he seemed to set that aside, and he sounded like what he was saying was Jesus alone is the good life. Well, of course Jesus alone is the good life, but I think he's going to let me golf. I hope. And I know that there's others here that hope that too, and there's others here that don't understand that game at all. Psalm 129. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. But they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the housetops, which wither before they can grow. With it the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the songs that we have lifted high unto you in our praise. And we pray that you would be with your servant. Give him your words. May you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. I wear glasses because my daughter at one time, when she was about nine or ten, said they make me look more intelligent. I think that was her way of saying something else when I don't wear glasses, but I'll leave that alone. This psalm is a difficult psalm. It's a personal psalm. It's a private psalm. And it's a psalm that leads us to be anchored in God. It's difficult because it deals with our own trauma. It deals with our own pain. It deals with our own sense of loss. It deals with who we, who we are and what we've done in our lives to others. And so today I'm hoping that as we share together with God that you would allow Christ to speak to you privately. That you would listen to his voice of love, compassion, kindness, and concern. I pray that you would understand the Holy Spirit and his goal for you to have life in Jesus Christ. So the first announcement that the psalmist says to us, he actually repeats, and it's kind of like 
You've already said that. But he repeats it for a reason. He repeats it for emphasis. They have greatly oppressed me since my youth. Youth to me is always just yesterday. Today I'm older than I was yesterday, so yesterday must be that's when I was young. Older to me is always five years beyond whatever I am. So I'm never old. I'm always here between youth and older. If that helps you, it's good you came. That might be the only thing you ever take home with you. They. Who are the they? The oppressors. The ones who have set themselves against us. The Israelites had been oppressed. The Israelites had been captured by the Babylonians. Seventy years in captivity. Seventy years of being told how to live. Seventy years of being told whether they could go out, whether they could socialize, whether they could shop at certain stores, whether they could go to certain stores. Seventy years, not a year and a half. I don't know if they wore masks, but they were told how to live, and they were enslaved. And the Babylonians were harsh to them. They mistreated them. They were unjust to them. They were cruel to them, the they. They were so bad that the psalmist said that the furrows have dug deeply into my back. Deep furrows, harsh. And so this morning, the psalmist repeats it because the psalmist wants us to understand that you need to remember your pain. And you would think that's kind of silly because surely God doesn't want us to remember our pain. Surely there's a point at which we need to forget our pain and move forward. And as a psychologist, I think, yeah, I think we need to forget our pain. But then I turn to God and I listen to him and he says, no, I, I don't want you to remember the painful event. I don't want you to re-traumatize yourself. But you need to remember that people have harmed you or that nature has harmed you. Your home has burnt down. Flooding has occurred. Hurricanes have swept across you. Forest fires are raging. Disease has struck you. A diagnosis has been given to you. And death has come. So who are the they in your life when you think back? Who are the they in your youth? Yesterday. A couple of years ago. 20 years ago. Who are the they? because they oppressed you, they harmed you, they hurt you. I had a client come in a number of years ago and he sat with me for the first session and we talked and chatted and got along okay and he made another appointment and as he walked out of the door I, I, I just thought to myself, I don't know why you came here, I'm not sure what this person wanted from me. So he came to the second session and we talked again and he got to know me and I got to know him and he made a third appointment and he left and I still, I said, Lord, I don't know why this person's here. So the third session, this gentleman came in and he sat down and this time he looked just a little bit nervous. He was a little bit more subdued, a little bit quiet. And he said, I need to tell you, I've been abusing my best friend's 10-year-old boy. And as I listened to him unfold some of the story, and I stopped him and said, I've, you know, I've heard enough, that's good, I, I get what you're here for. You realize that I need to report you? He said, yes. 
I was hoping you would do that. And I was a bit confused, and then he said this to me. I needed to know that you were someone I could trust, so that when I got out, I would be able to come and see you, and you would share the love of God with me, and help me, because I need help. The they, the they in that best friend, became his best friend. The they in that young child became his father's best friend. The they in that mother became her husband's best friend and dug deeply into their backs. A few months later, that 10-year-old came in to see me and we talked and unfolded what had happened and all that he was going to grow up with. The trauma of life touches us deeply. We need to acknowledge our past. Just acknowledge it. Just know that I was hurt. I was betrayed. I was lied to. I was deceived. I was cheated. I was wrongfully accused. I was caught. We just need to remember, the psalmist said, to cry out to God, the youth of my past, they oppressed me. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child, but when I became an adult, when I grew up, when I became a man, I put away childish things. I put them behind me. This verse is written in what is called the Greek aorist, tense. It means to continually work, work on, to continually do, to continually work at. Paul wasn't saying, I took my past and put it over here in a closet and acted as if it didn't happen. Or I got over it, or I worked through it. I don't even know what those terms mean. I've heard many of my clients come in and say to me, I just need to work through something. You need to work through it, how? So it never happens, so it doesn't impact you anymore, so it doesn't bother you. Paul wasn't saying put things aside and forget them. What he was saying was continually work at understanding what happened to you in your youth so that you can move ahead without the impact of what happened to you in the youth. And we'll talk about that. Jesus said it this way in Mark 4. And it's one of the reasons that Jesus wanted his disciples to know who he was and what they had, not how he could perform. He performed many miracles. He fed 5,000 people and more with a couple of loaves of fish, a couple of loaves of fish, a couple of loaves of bread, and a couple of fish in Mark 4, 35 to 41. And when he was finished feeding the, the thousands of people, the people gathered together and they wanted to force him to be king. Why? Well, could you imagine? Could you imagine our city? Could you imagine how prominent we would be? We wouldn't need doctors. We wouldn't need nurses. We wouldn't need really employment. We wouldn't need homes for the homeless. We wouldn't have the homeless. We wouldn't have disease. Here's a man who could just heal the blind. 
Heal the lame. Heal the sick. Here's a man who could raise someone from the dead. Here's a man who could take just a few little pieces of food and feed thousands of people. Imagine the people around the world that would come to Jerusalem to see us. Imagine how rich we could become. We would have our streets filled with gold, laden with jewels. And they wanted to force him to be king, not because of who he was, but because of what he could do. And Jesus spent hours and hours with his disciples trying to get their attention to who I am, not what I can do for you. If your heart is in what Jesus can do for you, your treasure is in the wrong place. Can I say that? Is that okay? Jesus said where your heart is, there your treasure will be. If your heart is in what Jesus can do for you, it's in the wrong place. Your heart needs to be in Jesus for who he is. In the middle of a storm, Christ is asleep in the stern of the boat, and the disciples wake him up. And this is what they say to him. In the middle of their storm, water swamping their boat. I should have kept one of those boats up here. Do you not care? How many of us have said that to Jesus? I've said that to Jesus. Don't you care? Don't you care what's going on in my life as a young child? Don't you care what's happening in my life as an adolescent? Don't you care what's happening in our life as a married couple and with our children? Don't you care, Father? It's interesting because Jesus doesn't really answer that question. He just stood up looked straight into the storm and said, be still. And the wind stopped. Looked at the waves and said, be calm. And the waves were calm. Could you imagine Jesus down on the coast of Florida last week? And the Floridians saying, don't you care? And Jesus would step out on the shore and the wind blowing against him, he'd say, be quiet. And it would stop. That's who we believe in. That's God. The disciples were terrified. They looked at each other and said, Who is this? That's the question. Who is this? This is God. This is the great I am. This is the bread of life. This is the water. This is the one who quenches your thirst. This is the one who walks with you through the storm. This is the one who cares for you. This is the one who loves you. This is the one who will walk with you no matter what. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, he lifts you up and says, you are my child, and I love you. This is Jesus Christ, the one in whom we just sang about. Don't worship Christ for what he can do. It's a trick, and it's deceptive. Worship Christ for who he is. Anchor yourself in Jesus. Not in what he can do for you. So are you saying that we shouldn't ask God to do things for us? That's not what I'm saying. God does things for us all the time. God finds parking spots for us. We heard that last week. God makes sure that 
things are right around the corner for you in time of, of need. Of course God think, does things for us. But don't get trapped in what he does for you. Because when those things don't work out, when the times of life become so crushing that we can hardly get ourselves up off the mat, and you cry out, don't you care? Jesus will say to you, with all my heart, I care. I'm right with you. John 16, 33, Jesus said to them, I have told you these things. I've told you all these things that I've been telling you about so that in me, you might have peace. Not in what I can do for you, but in me, you might have peace. In this world, you will have many troubles. You will have a lot of problems. It's not going to be good. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Well, what good is that? I don't know what the disciples would have said to him. So what? Come on, Jesus. Like, what we want is for you to protect us. What we want is for you to put a hedge around us. What we want is no disease, no sickness. I don't want to ever become old. I don't want to die. At least not that way. Not through disease. Not through suffering. And Jesus said, listen, this world has a lot of troubles. But I have overcome the world. You are in me. You are anchored in me. Your heart is in me. And with your heart in me, that's where your treasure is. In me. And I'll walk with you. So when we look at the suffering of the world, we tend to ask a few questions, I think. And one of those questions is, how do we understand a loving God in a world of suffering? It's one of the questions that over the 30 years of my practice, I've had many Christians ask me that question. I've had a client come in whose 21-year-old son was drowned in a lake. He was a, he was a lifeguard. He was trained. And he got caught in the undertow. And he was told by his family and his friends that he had been, you know, had been long enough in sorrow. It's been eight months. You've you got to move on with life. You've got to get back to work. You've got to do these things. He came in and sat down with me and told me his story. The long, deep furrow in his back. And he looked at me and he said, where is a loving God in my suffering? Surely we as Christians should know the answer to that question, shouldn't we? We shouldn't stumble over that question. Perhaps that question or the answer to that question is just too easy. Or maybe people don't like the answer because many people don't like the answer. Disaster, disease, death come. You realize the truth that with life on this planet is incredibly fragile. It's incredibly fragile for the best of us, for the strongest of us, for the healthy of us. It's incredibly fragile. I've had people say to me, don't give me your Christian pat answers. Why does a loving God allow suffering? And I look at them and I say, all I have is Christian pat answers. That's all God, God gave us, just these pat answers. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is because we have free will. I have a son and a daughter. How many times as they were growing up did I want to correct them? I wanted to reach out and say, look, don't do that. That's silly. Do this. It would be best for you, and it would have been best for them. Don't make that decision. Make this decision. Don't do it that way. Do it this way. 
because I'm a loving father. And at some point in their lives, at least up till they were three, I had control. <laughs> I knew I lost control of my daughter at three years old because she looked at her mother and said, I do it my way. That was one of her first words. Well, sentences, complete thoughts. So if you intervene in everything your child did, you made sure your child went through life perfectly, that everything that you did for your child was absolutely the best, would they love you? You would have no idea because you gave them no choice. There was no choice. They just did what you told them to do. They followed what you said to do. They were just a robot. And without choice, we don't know if anybody loves each other. We don't know what choice you would have made. And so God said to Adam and Eve, you can have everything in the garden except that tree over there. Don't eat from that tree. But you can have everything else. Just don't eat from that tree. Did you hear what I said? You can have everything in the garden, but don't eat from that one tree, just that one tree. Because that tree will tell me whether or not you love me or not. So what did Adam and Eve do? Do you ever wonder how long they lived in the garden? Was it a week? Did it take a couple of months? Was it 50 years? How long did they walk in the cool of the night and talk to God himself? How long did they enjoy the, the water that sprung up out of the ground that was crystal clear? How long did they go over to those trees and those plants and pick from them and eat from them and be filled and the flavor just burst in their mouth like a party going on? How long do you think they lived there? We don't really know. It doesn't tell us. But we can venture to guess by the age of their children, it could have been 100 years. They could have lived there 100 years according to how old Cain and Abel were. But at some point, they were deceived. One of the most humbling verses in scripture is Genesis 3.9, where Adam said nothing. Why did sin come into the world through Adam? Didn't it come into the world through Eve? I would like to think it was a woman's fault. Don't you men think it was a woman's fault? Why are we to blame? Because Adam said nothing. He stood there with his wife as she picked the fruit and gave it to him. And sin entered our world. And it drastically changed everything for us. It changed everything for nature. Suddenly there would be hurricanes. Tornadoes, tsunamis, earthquakes, forest fires. Suddenly nature would be in groaning, as Romans tells us. Nothing would be right. Everything would be just wrong. So why do we have a loving God and a suffering world? Because we live in a world that suffers. Not because of God. That's the message I want you to get. Not because of God. God does not bring suffering to you. 
God doesn't bring disease to you so that he can teach you something. He doesn't bring a disaster to you so that he can help you learn something. He doesn't bring disaster to you so that you can learn patience and kindness and, and you know, long-suffering. He doesn't do that. He will bring it out of it, but he, won't, he doesn't bring the disaster. I like how James talks because James was a brother to Jesus and so we should pay a little bit of attention to him. He knew Jesus quite well. And he said it this way, Stop saying this, that evil comes from God. Way back in James' day, people still thought evil came from God. That God was using it somehow as a tool to punish them or to, to create some type of maturity in them. I hear people say to one another, well, the Lord took him, or the Lord took her. The Lord doesn't take people. He receives people. But he doesn't take them. We're not walking along in life and get into a car accident and suddenly get swept away in death and, well, the Lord took him. No, he didn't. Am I being too forceful this morning? <laughs> he receives them. He knows before you're born, and he knows the very moment you're going to end your life here on earth. He knows it, but he doesn't cause it. He causes you to be born, but he doesn't cause death. Death and God are enemies. It's not a circle of life. Disney has a circle of life. Good for them. It's not a circle of life. We live in an environment that promotes suffering. So why me? Luke 4, 22, 42. Jesus asks it this way, why me? Everything is possible for you, so take this cup from me, Father. Why me? Do I really have to suffer like this? They're going to beat me. They're going to whip me. They're going to slap me in the face. They're going to spit at me. My back is going to bleed from the whipping. My head is going to bleed from the thorn, crown thorn that they're going to put on me and press into my skull. Father, if there's any way you could do this some other way, now is the time to move. Why am I being singled out? It's not because God is trying to teach you something. It's not because you did anything wrong. It's not because you're being punished. It's because we live in a world of suffering. We sometimes teach that God will not give us more than we can handle. I'm not sure where we get that idea from except from 1 Corinthians 10:13. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And we take that verse and we go, God won't allow anything bad to happen to me that I can't endure. It's not what it says. Temptation can mean trials and tribulations. But not in this context. Listen to the rest that precedes it. Paul's talking. These are the things that took place in my life that we might not desire evil. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. The people sat down and eat and drank and rose up and played. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and we were destroyed by the destroyer. Do not succumb to evil. And then it says, no temptation 
has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's good news. He won't let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. But there are things that have happened to me that I can't bear. So Paul went on further and talked about himself. And he said, I have been in prison far more times than any of you have ever been. I have had countless beatings. I can't even remember how many beatings I've had. I have been beat so badly that I have come near death. Five times I received at the hands of my own people, the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, meaning stones were thrown at him. just wanted to clarify that. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I met danger with my own people. I met danger with the Gentiles. I met danger with my brothers. I toiled in hardship. I had sleepless nights. I hungered. I thirsted. And I was often without food. I was cold and exposed. Nowhere in there does Paul suggest that he endured all of that and nothing there ever came close to crushing him. In fact, what he goes on to say is, I was almost crushed. Friends, I think there's times when we have to say to God, I'm almost crushed here. And God understands that. This world punishes us. So how will we respond? Jesus responded, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. And he fell to the ground and prayed. He sweat drops of blood. And psychologists tell us that it's possible to be under such anxiety that our pores can, can actually bleed out. It's very unusual. You have to be under a high amount of anxiety and stress. So let me start with the Bible does not say about how to respond. The Bible does not say to go through the storms of life and pretend it doesn't hurt. There's nowhere where it suggests that if you can go through the storms of life and act tough and strong and stiff upper lip and everything's okay, that that's a gold medal. I think many of us grew up being taught that. Not to give in to the suffering of this world. Nor do I think that we need to blubber our way through and, and every conversation we have is about my past and how I've suffered and how I've struggled. I had a client that I saw when I was in Chicago and she had been abused, terribly, horrifically abused, and a huge file on her. And my manager said to me, I was doing my internship, so I was fairly new to this, and she said to me, what I want you to do is I want you to have this client and I want you to have her fall in love with her, with you. And I looked at her and said, I've never met the woman and I'm married. You want me to do what? She said, well, I, I want her to know that there's a man who could love her and not abuse her. So I met with the woman and we met several times and she continually was talking about her story. She never looked up at me once during a session. And after several sessions, I took the file sitting in a chair, so I wasn't too high, and I let it drop on the floor. And she was startled and looked up at me, and I said, I was just wondering how long you're going to stay there, and when you're going to allow Jesus to free you. How will you respond? Some of us respond by becoming really busy. Some of us respond by buying everything we can. 
Some of us respond by hiding ourselves behind closed doors or not going out too much or not giving ourselves into relationship too much because I've been hurt in relationship. Some of us control everything so much that we control everybody around us such that nobody has any freedom at all around you. Just to be sure my life is safe. People sometimes think that being a good Christian means going through losses and never grieving. I'm not sure where we get all that idea, but I can tell you it doesn't come from the Bible. The psalmist asked the question, where are you, God? How long, God? Why are you hiding your face from me, God? Another book in the Bible written during this time of the 70 years that they were in captivity called the Book of Lamentations. A whole book devoted to grieving. A whole book of mourning before God. God is a big God. And he can handle your anger and your confusion and your disbelief at times. So come to him. God said to Adam and Eve, where are you? And they said, we're hiding. And the question was, why would you hide from me? Why would you hide from God the Father, the one who loves you? Well, we were ashamed. Yeah, I get that. Why are you hiding from me? Some of you have significant loss and have never mourned. You've never shed a tear. You've never shared it with anyone. You've never faced the sadness. You need to do that with God. You may not need counseling. I don't think everyone needs counseling. The three of you here don't. Just seeing if you're listening or not. I don't think counselors have an ability to free you from the things of the past. I just don't believe that. I can say that because I'm a psychologist. I teach at a university, and I understand the pulse of our society right now. And I can tell you that many people believe that psychology and counseling is the answer, or science is the answer, or some philosophy is the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. There's no other answer to life and to the suffering that we go through. So find someone that you can be confident with and hold confidence in your story. And when somebody comes to you and tells you in confidence what happened, don't go to somebody else and say, they told me not to tell you, but... And if somebody says that to you, you should stop them and say, if they told you not to tell me, don't tell me. And if you tell me, I'm going to go to them and tell them that you told me. Do that. Then they won't tell you. Hold it in confidence. Be with them. Just be with them. I had a client come and sit with me for a session and never said a word. Fifty minutes went by. Thanked him for coming. He said, oh, great. I said, do you want to come back? He said, yeah. I said, Okay. Made another appointment. He came in, sat there for another 50 minutes, said nothing. I talked to him. I said, do you want to say anything? He said nothing. He didn't answer me at all. 
four sessions. Finally, I was getting guilty for you know, being paid to say nothing. But I was reflective and thought, well, maybe that's what I do anyway. But the fourth session, I said to him, I can't keep seeing you. Now, he wasn't paying me. Other people were paying me, so it was all right with him. I can't keep seeing you and not say anything to me. What are you doing here? He said, I am so lonely. I just need someone to be with one hour a week. I got him in touch with a church and involved in a small group. And I never saw him again. And he's not lonely. We need to mourn with those who mourn. It doesn't say give advice. It doesn't say give theological explanation to their situation. It doesn't tell them that it's not so bad. You know, there's other people that are suffering worse. Thank you very much. It doesn't tell them about your broken arm, even though we will. Just be with them. Pray with them. About 80% of my clientele were non-Christians. What they didn't know was what they walked into my office, there was myself and God. They didn't know that. They didn't know that when they left my office, I would whisper a prayer for them as they left. But what they did know, and many of them would say to me, when we come into your office, it's so quiet and peaceful here. I had an individual who was LGBTQ. He was going through a marriage breakdown, and he came in to see me. And I chatted with him and talked to him about his mourning and his grieving and what he's going through. And after a number of sessions, he thanked me for my time. He felt like he could go on in his life. And as he reached for the door knob, he turned and looked at me and he said, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. Are you a Christian? I said, yes. He said, so you don't really agree with my lifestyle? I said, no, not really. But I like you. You're a child created by God. And he said, I want to thank you. You have changed my perspective of Christianity. And he walked out. I've never seen him since. I don't know what God did with that. But what do you do with those who are grieving? Do you love them? What do you do with the one who abused? Do you love them? It took me a while to find a church that would take that gentleman in and minister to him. Many churches told me they couldn't allow a person who had abused a 10-year-old boy to engage in their church. I understood that. Finally, we found a church that set up guidelines and, and rules around him, and Children and Family Services agreed with it when he came out. And I remember him saying to me at one point, God's forgiven me, hasn't he? I said, yes. What I did was horrible. I said, yes. But I'm safe in him, aren't I? My heart is anchored in Jesus Christ, right? I said, yes. So where is God when we're suffering? 
Mark 15, 31, my God, my God, from Jesus' were mouth said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was on the cross at that time, hung between two thieves. Do you ever wonder how the people of Israel went one weekend to throwing palm branches down on the ground and singing hallelujah, praise the Lord, the king is here? Have you ever wondered how they went from that to a week later Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barbados. What's his name? Barabbas. Thank you. Give us Barabbas. Take Jesus. Did you ever wonder what happened between that moment to this moment? What happened was that these people wanted him for what he could do and not for who he was. So where is God? Sometimes we believe that the existence of pain and suffering or evil means there cannot be a God. Well, that can't be. We look around and the design of this world is just too overwhelming. Even people who teach evolution will say to you, and you can read it in books, you can even read it in the author of evolution, in his book, it doesn't make sense. We're not clear on how this all occurred. But we refuse to bend our knee to a sovereign God. So we believe in evolution. I wonder who the they's are in your children's lives today. One of the big ones is evolution. Another one is that all truth is found in yourself and what your truth is is good for you and what your truth is good for you. And that's where truth is. Truth is whatever you want it to be. I was with a group at the University of Waterloo, a bunch of professors, and I said to them, you know, it's difficult to have truth with this person and truth with that person because often they conflict and they're so diverse that one of them must be wrong. And they said, can you give us an example of that? And I said, well, I was with a gentleman not too long ago who doesn't believe in the lifestyle of LGBTQ. <gasps> exactly. <gasps> so what does that tell you? This gentleman's truth is, that's wrong. Truth over here is, it's right. Our children are being fought for by the enemy, by Satan and the demonic for their minds, for the philosophy of life, and for what they believe, who they are, and in their gender. And we need to fight for our children. We need to fight against the philosophies of this world, not the people of this world. Paul said our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and the darkness of this world. That's who we fight against. We pray against those things. So where was Jesus? Where was God? He was on the cross, dying for you, dying for the sin of this world, dying for wrong philosophies, dying for the wrong thinking, dying for the wrong behavior, dying for his nature, dying for all of nature that was in groaning. Jesus was hanging on the cross. And as he hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in Christ's life, which was fairly long since he had no beginning, for the first time in his life, he felt the angst of not being in communion with his Father for you so that you would never feel the angst 
of not being in communion with the Father. And as he said the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And drew his last breath in the temple, the curtain that kept us all away from God, the Holy of Holies, that only the the high priest would ever go in once a year and present all the sin of the world, all the sin of the nation into the Holy of Holies. As Christ breathed his last breath, that curtain was ripped in two so that as Christ felt the angst of missing God, we, we could come to God through Jesus. That's where he is in your suffering. That's where he is when that one dies. So as I sat with that father and he asked me these questions, he bowed his head and he thanked God. He thanked God that his son was saved and in glory. He thanked God for what he had and the many blessings. And he just poured his heart out and thanked the Lord for salvation. Where is God in the midst of our suffering? He's on the cross, taking our sin. I am, Jesus said. I am your God. Every tear will be wiped away. Every painful feeling will never be felt again. I will come back. I have overcome the world. And I will make things right. So how do I live in a dangerous world? You go to 12 o'clock here, right? How do I live in a dangerous world? The psalmist writes in verse 4, But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. The cords are not loosened that hold me to my past. They're not loosened that hold me to my trauma. They are broken. They're not broken by some counselor or some friend or some pastor or some message. They're broken by God. They are broken, severed. That's what God does for us. He cuts me free from the cords that hold me. Not from the memory, not from what happened, but from the impact of it. I had a father who told me that he had bought some tickets for the Kitchen Rangers. We remember the Kitchen Rangers. They're going to do well this year, apparently. They're going to do well every year. So he had these tickets, and his eight-year-old son was really excited about it, and they were talking about it all week. And on Thursday evening, his little boy came home from school, and he, through the evening, said to his father, Hey, Dad, so-and-so, you know, my best friend invited me over tomorrow night for, you know, for, for a sleepover. And he's having a couple of my other buddies, and is it okay if I go there? So the father has a choice, right? The father can look at him because the father came from a home of rejection. The father came from being hurt and put down. The father came from a fear of somebody rejecting me all of my life. And finally, here my son, eight years old, is rejecting me. He's putting somebody before me. And all that pain that I had growing up from my past was holding me to say to my son, are you kidding me? You're going to the game. And you're coming with me. And we're going to have fun. Or he said, no, you can go to the game, but then Saturday morning, and all day Saturday, and finally the little boy goes to mom and says, is dad upset with me? Oh, I don't think so. But he hasn't talked to me all day. Oh, hasn't he? He seems kind of, you know, out of sorts or grumpy. Well, maybe he's not feeling well. 
know, he went to see the Rangers last night, and, you know. Or the father could say to the Lord, what are the chords right now? And the Lord could say, you're afraid of being rejected, like you were from your father. You're afraid of, of failure, like your teacher told you you would, ever, you would be, just a failure. You're afraid of these things that happened back here in your life, and I'm going to cut the cord. I'm going to cut the cord, and you're going to look at your son, and you're going to go, you go and be with your friend and have a good time. And Saturday morning, Dad got up and went down and made breakfast for his son, and they chatted and talked about the fun that he had with his friend. Because the cord had been broken. So here's the good news. You don't need a counselor to tell you what the cords are. I seem to be against counselors. I'm not sure why. I built my life as a counselor. and I think it's because I can see my cohorts, my fellow people, try their best with their psychological theories and bringing them into a counseling room and trying to cut these cords and having a difficult time because God cuts the cord. God cuts the impact of our past so that we can be who he wants us to be today. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof that withers and it doesn't grow. With it, the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The psalmist isn't saying here anything contradictory to what Christ teaches. Christ taught to love your enemies. Christ taught to love those who are suffering and struggling in life the Good Samaritan, and all that story. What the psalmist is saying is, you don't want what these people have done to prosper. That's what he's saying. Don't let the grass grow. Don't let the one who is wicked fill their arms with the goodness of it. Don't allow that to happen in your life. Jesus said it this way. You will be forgiven the way in which you've forgiven those who have sinned against you. God can't possibly set you free if you don't set people in your life free. Forgiveness isn't, oh, it's okay. Forgiveness is, I won't make you accountable for it. I won't make you pay for it. I won't keep telling you what you did wrong. I'll forgive you. You don't owe me anything. We don't go by and say, oh, bless you. You're, you're the one that abused that person. May that you know, prosper. You're the murderer. May that be a good job. You're the betrayer. Nice work. The psalmist said, don't allow that to happen in your life. As the children of Israel made their way back to Jerusalem, cut the cords of the philosophies that you learned. Cut the cords of the false gods that you learned about. Cut the cords of worshipping a king rather than God, where Daniel was sent into the lion's den. Cut the cords and go back to worshipping God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So what do we pray? Why is the good news I don't have to do this? Search me and know me, O oh God. You search me and know me. 
You tell me, in my quiet time with you, what cords need to be broken. Because he'll tell you at the right time, in the right moment in your life. He won't tell you before you can handle it, and he won't tell you after you needed it. He'll tell you right when you needed it, because he's the bread of life. And he gives you his bread at just the right moment, and he gives you a drink at just the right moment, so that you can live life. So we pray against the wicked and what they did to us. But we love the wicked, the people. We want them to be saved. But we pray against what they did. And we come to God and ask him to reveal it in our lives in the moment that we need. And perhaps that's with a counselor, perhaps a friend, or just in your quiet time with God. But do it. Where are the cords, Lord, that need to be broke? so that the wicked don't prosper in my life, so that the things that they did to me don't prosper in my life, so that they don't get to reap anything from what they did to me in my life, and that I live my life fully and committed to Jesus Christ. It's a difficult message because it's private. It's personal. It's a message of anchoring yourself in who God is, it's a message that should encourage us. We believe in a God that loves us tremendously. Remember your trauma, your pain, and your disappointments. Pray against the deceptions of your mind and the philosophies of this world. Thank God for breaking the cords and be anchored in the heart of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your message. I just pray that each of us would come to you. And we just ask you to search us and know us. To be with us as a mother and a father, an aunt and uncle, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, a good friend. Just be with us. Teach us when those things of our past are interfering with who we are today in our lives and break the cords for us. Rip them apart. Fill us with your spirit that we might live a life for you, glorifying you. And we thank you for being a good, good father. In Jesus' name, amen.